Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I'm so excited to bring our guest to you guys today because she is somebody who blew my mind a couple of years ago. Janine Benyus um, is a she's an international superstar when it comes to the the biomimicry world. Um, she has done some of the most innovative and creative things using the natural world to help big companies. I mean, we're talking uh, Herman Miller, General Electric, Nike, Boeing, so many others use nature and the lessons from nature to create more sustainable designs. And we're going to talk about this in in a lot of detail, but let me bring Janine on. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Janine. I am so glad to have you on this morning. It is good to be with you, Jill. Well, you are one of my sheroes, and so um, I, I really feel excited about this interview um, for so many reasons. I'd like to start by having you go back to the beginning of your career in biomimicry, because so many of our listeners are young adults who are at the start of mm. their own careers, and I think your path will really be inspiring for them. So talk to us about how you got started in this field. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, all good books start with a good question, so that's that's the short answer. Um, but um, I, let's see, I, I grew up um, running outside every morning and spending all day outside, all day. So that, that was the uh, beginning of it. And I was kind of a, you know, a little nature nerd growing up, uh, very much a naturalist. <clears throat> and, uh, and then I decided that... Um, the best way to help people fall in love with the natural world was to, was to write about it and to, write, to become a science writer, which I, I went to the Forest Service first, and I was working with them, and then I decided to start writing my own books. So I had written five natural history books, and when I look back on them, mm-hmm. they're all about plant and animal adaptations. They're all about how organisms learn to live so elegantly in their places through what I now feel is natural technologies, you know, really life-friendly chemistry, amazing ways of doing drag reduction, amazing ways of minimizing their materials, lightweight birds flying with hollow bones. All of those things to me now are natural technologies. And I, I was writing about them to natural history readers, and a question occurred to me, and it was okay, these are very sustainable technologies. There must be a field in which inventors study the natural world in order to come up with new, you know, more sustainable products and processes. I just assumed that there was a field that did this. And I went looking. I said, okay, you know, how how do solar cells work? And certainly it must have been a botanist, you know, telling somebody how a leaf works. And I realized that that isn't the case at all. <laughs> the people who yeah. made solar cells did not consult with botanists. And it shocked me. So I started, I started looking. And uh, whenever I would find an example, and this is back in 1990, mm-hmm. uh, whenever I would find an example of a scientist who was studying a phenomenon like leaves and then trying to emulate it, 
That was the thing. Are they trying to actually learn from it, not just about it, to create a better solar cell? I would, I would clip that, that article. And um, this is back in the days when we were Xeroxing. Yeah, and um, I was so cool then, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I I got enough for a folder, and I had to name the folder. So I realized, my God, this this is unbelievable. This is a field looking to the natural world for for invention ideas is a field that doesn't have a name, and I had to name the file folder. And so I went to the dictionary. Bio means life. Mimesis means to imitate. I thought, biomimesis, that's a little tough. Um, that's how, you know, material scientists call it that. I said, how about biomimicry? And I wrote biomimicry on the tab. Um, and then a few months later, I, I had a file drawer. And then a few months later, I had a, a whole four drawer file cabinet. And I walked past it one day and I said, this is a field that has no name. It's time to, it's time to write about this. It's That's really how it started. That is amazing. I love that. And then you <laughs> wrote your book, which is yep. on my bookshelf. And uh, when I have students come in to, to my office, they see it on my, uh, in my library. It's called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And it deals with some of the most pressing issues that we're going to be facing in the 21st century. And I'd like to have you discuss how biomimicry might help us work through some of these issues. Let's start with this question. How do we feed ourselves? How do we feed ourselves? Exactly. Um, We, well, right now, you know, a lot of our agriculture is, um, is not at all mimicking natural ecosystems. You know, we basically have one species, like a corn plant, you know, for miles, right? Um, that's really not how it works in the natural world. Um, in the natural world, um, there, there are not, you know, annual plants for miles that you dig up every year and plant new seeds, right? There's, mm-hmm. There are these polycultures, which are just mixtures of species in a field. Think of a, think of a prairie. Um, and they're overwintering every year. So they're perennials. So I, I interviewed um, Wes Jackson of the Land Institute, who is trying to uh, actually take our, our annual monocultures and turn them into perennial overwintering polycultures. Um, because that actually, you know, if, you, if you're growing plants in the Midwest, the most sustainable thing you can do to hold soil and have the, the plants sponsor their own fertility and protect themselves from pests would be to mimic the structure and the function of a prairie. If you're down in a tropical area, it would be a three-story um, agriculture. You know, shade, think shade-grown coffee. And um, now there's actually some, there's a really cool uh, group called Greenwave um, that is doing 3D farming in oceans, where oh, they wow. grow, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an amazing guy named Bren Smith. He'd be great for your show. Um, he basically, he lost his oyster um, uh, business in Hurricane Sandy and said, what if, what if we recreated basically a, multi, a, a kelp forest? It was, was what he was looking at. So he, he, he now grows kelp 
um, from lines that are floating on the on the top of the ocean, and then um, the kelp grows down in these curtains, and then he's got um, cages of oysters and scallops and mussels and things like that, and fish flow in and out of that. It's completely open. It's not like aquaculture where you're having a plume of nitrogen. So he right. basically has put all the creatures that can would normally live together in an area and replicated that, um, that underwater forest. So it's this idea of, you know, if we feed ourselves in a way that that functions like the ecosystem next door, um, that's going to be more sustainable. That's yeah. basically the story of all biomimicry, right? You look to what exactly. would nature do here and what wouldn't nature do here and why and why not, and then you begin to mimic um, those, those patterns, those principles. Well, and, and I want you to talk about how biomimicry could help us answer a really tough question, because as the world begins to become more and more developed and we need more and more energy, how will we harness that energy in the 21st century? Well, you know, if you were to say, you know, how does nature harness energy, turn energy into life, right? Um, you'd have to look at the biggest uh, energy system on the planet. Uh, which is photosynthesis. You know, there are a few organisms way down in the deep, in the sea vents um, that are doing chemosynthesis, but most energy is taken from the sun, and so photosynthesis would be the, would be the model. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, it's not just that life takes sunlight, a leaf, look at a leaf, takes sunlight. It's not just that it turns it into electricity, like we do. It actually turns it into a chemical storage, right? A leaf creates sugars and starches. Uh, And it takes CO2 and water and sunlight and turns that into a material, a storage, right? A storage of that energy. So people are are not just looking at um, thin film solar cells that work like a leaf, but they're also looking at how do we take excess CO2 and sunlight and water and how do we create fuels? Um, there's many people, that's a field called artificial photosynthesis. Uh-huh. Um, oh, that's fascinating. That's, yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting because it, um, CO2 is the poison of our era. Right. We think of it as a poison because we've put so much of it into the atmosphere. Uh, and we need to draw it down now. And life has been doing that for such a long time, right? Every green algae mm-hmm. and plant that you see is doing carbon chemistry, CO2 chemistry. We're also learning a lot about that on how to draw down carbon dioxide, turn it into fuels, turn it into materials like plastics, um, do what coral reefs do, turn it into um, something that's similar to a coral reef, which is uh, cement. Um, These are all, to me, you know, carbon chemistry is essential reading for humanity right now. No kidding. Uh, And and this whole idea, yeah, this whole idea of, of using what biologists understand and putting that together with engineering and design folks is thrilling. And we're going to be talking more about this in a minute. We've got to take a quick, quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. News. Opinion. 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 
your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Janine Benyus. She's the author of many books, but the one that I know of most uh, readily on my bookshelf is Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And Janine has helped some of the biggest names in business create sustainable designs that mimic the way that the natural world solves problems, and as she calls it, natural technologies. And in her book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, she deals with one question. Janine, I want you to help us think through this. Um, you ask the question, how will we make things? And that is a big 21st century question. Talk to us about how we can answer that through biomimicry. Oh, absolutely. I was one of my, it was a hard chapter um, in the book because uh, I had to learn materials science. Um, but then I realized, you know, our whole entire world, when you walk out into a forest, you're looking at a material manufacturing facility, happens mm-hmm. to be silent, right? Um, chemistry going on, making, you know, miracle materials, really. Uh, you don't have to wear eye guards or mm. ear guards. It's, it's not that kind of manufacturing plant, but it's absolutely manufacturing m- materials, whether it's a spider spinning silk, which is five times stronger, ounce for ounce, than steel, um, or a composite like uh, cellulose in trees, mm. um, which can bend and strengthen itself with reaction. What amazing materials. So the question is, you know, 
how can material scientists learn from um, how nature makes materials, how the rest of nature makes materials? And one of the main characteristics is that life makes its materials uh, in a chemistry that's very different than ours. When we, and a material scientists taught me this, when we make a material um, like a plastic, um, we, we heat it up, we treat it with chemicals, we subject it to high pressures. They call it heat, beat, and treat. That's the formula for how we make materials. But in the natural world, if you're a spider, you can't do that because your manufacturing plant is your own body. So life has figured out a way to, t- you know, the spider is taking things that fly into it, a moth flies into its web, right? It mm-hmm. goes and it eats that, and it, in, in body, in, in low temperature, in water, rather than toxic solvents, which, is, you know, hydrochloric acid is what we mm-hmm. use as a solvent, um, and with very low pressures, the, it takes that moth and it transforms those materials, upcycles those materials, into this incredible silk. And then, you know, if it, if it doesn't have a moth, it can eat silk, it can eat the web and make more silk. So this, you know, these, there's now a very large, um, thousands and thousands of scientists who study biological materials like shells, like silk, like collagens and resin and um, the natural materials that we have out there to create, to mimic um, that manufacturing process as well as those materials. That um, is so exciting. I mean, yeah. that that is like so thrilling. I mean, and just to hear you explain it and, and to think about the the possibilities of, of replicating something that nature has been doing forever, um, you know, is just is pretty amazing. And there's another question that you deal with in your book. And it's one of the things that is really on everybody's minds right now as we face this health crisis uh, of such enormity. You, you dealt with this question uh, over 20 years ago in your book. How will we heal ourselves by looking to nature's solutions? Mm. Yeah, you know, now when I think about that, the updated question there is how do we heal our planet mm-hmm. as well? I mean, I'm looking at, I'm working on a new book right now, and I'm looking at how does nature heal from trauma. Um, and so it's, not, it's everything from, you know, how does nature heal a, a cut in our own skin all the way up to, um, you know, a, a, a degraded habitat. You know, how, how, do, how does nature heal after, you know, big disruption? Mm-hmm. Um, but, in, you know, the, one of the things is that, we, you know, we think of ourselves as the only ones who do um, pharmacognosy, you know, the only ones who find drugs to heal ourselves. And actually, uh, there's, there's a field of um, people who look for drugs, in the in jungles by following organisms around, like huh. monkeys and primates, and seeing how they self-medicate, because organisms are, you know, they, their pharmacy is the natural world around them. Mm-hmm. So they've learned to when you know when a monkey has a stomach ache or whatever, it will go and it will find a particular plant. They'll actually travel a long distance to do this. A chimp. Um, find a particular plant and break it off in a particular way and dose, knowing that in the plant 
there are these compounds called secondary compounds. It's how, often how the plant defends itself. But, but the organisms have learned to take that and use it against things like parasites in their own, in their own body. Um, so it's a way, that, that chapter was a way about, for us finding drugs by mimicking the organisms who, who um, self-medicate. Um, now I'm, I'm very much interested in how does a, how does a, how, you know, I live in, I live in western Montana, so I live in mm-hmm. fire country. You know, how, you know, watching how a forest reassembles itself after a fire or how a coral reef reassembles itself after a big tsunami, right? Those, those patterns are going to be very, very helpful for us as we try to heal um, the planet that we're on right now. You know, how does it, mm-hmm. how do, what are the succession patterns, right? Where you go from, say, up, you know, Mount St. Helens, right, where it completely, the, the ash completely covered and destroyed a, an area, and, and how over decades did that come back? Those patterns are really interesting for us as we try to rehabilitate, you know, mine spoils. Mm-hmm. Or areas that we've overgrazed, or that we've, um, or that you know, frankly, have have been subject to r- these really, really hot fires. How do we, as human beings, come in? And I don't think we're going to manage those areas. I think we're going to help the helpers. I think we're going to learn how to because the, what what brings these systems back are the plants and the microbes in the soil for instance, that, that bring health back and fertility back. How do we create conditions conducive to them and help them do their best work? Mm-hmm. Um, those, are, those are the new patterns, I think, of healing. Well, you know, and, and it's very humbling to think about human beings, and we always think of ourselves as the tippy-top of the food chain, you know, the... the ultimate intelligence on the planet, you you have to have a certain amount of humility in order to stop and take a look to to learn from nature and to say, instead of, you know, this dominant and domination theory or or mindset that we've had for so long and to, to be humble enough to learn from nature. And, you know, when I saw you speak a couple of years ago at the Green Schools National Network uh, Conference, I was blown away by some of the concepts that you were talking about. Things like, um, instead of net zero energy buildings, what if we create buildings that are actually net positive for energy or same thing Mm. with water. What if, what if we were regenerative in the way that we design things? And, you know, in in keeping with that thought, I'd love for you to talk to us about how nature can teach us lessons about how we conduct business, how we conduct the things that we do. You know, the, um, this idea of how do we, organize ourselves so that we can do the important work that we need to do um, going forward in the next few decades um, is really, really important. The, we talk a lot about the technical things that we can mimic, you know, the shark skin on the hull of a boat. Um, I think of the design of teams, of human teams, as being a design issue actually. Mm-hmm. And you can look 
to the natural world for patterns of how, and you have to, you have to, you can't look and say, you know, how do lions work or how do ants work because that's a species specific thing. But if you mm-hmm. look, if you stand back and you look at whole ecosystems and how they knit themselves together, you really begin to see some things. And one of the things you see is that in mature ecosystems, you've got this amazing number of complex, what are called mutualisms. And what these are are these mutually beneficial relationships. So, you know, a flower gives a bee nectar and the bee pollinates the flower. That's a one-to-one mutualism. Or a tree, you know, gives carbon to these fungus, fungal helpers that wrap around its roots. And And the fungus gives the tree phosphorus, right? That's an exchange. It's a mutualism. But we now realize that it's much more complex than that. You know, we now, thanks to people like Suzanne Samard, who taught us about the wood wide web, which is that underneath, you know, a forest, there's a complex network of mycorrhizal fungi that are connecting trees and shrubs and herbs to each other and exchanging nutrients, right? Now, that concept of allocating resources throughout the forest um, is really helpful to us. So, in what, what we do um, when we work with a company is we look at mutualisms and we say, how does the natural world establish a partnership? How does it maintain a partnership? How does it keep from cheating in a partnership? Um, so we, we have been talking to organizations about the, basically the etiquette of partnerships and mutualisms. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot more cooperation. You know, in business school you learn about competition, and there is competition in the natural world, but it is within a very cooperative framework. Um, so this idea of cooperation being the, you know, a, a dominant paradigm in the natural world is, is a revelation to some companies. But yeah, it, I would you know, imagine and, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that's so cool, and we're going to talk about this in the next segment, is how you've actually taken this principle to real companies, I mean, and very successful companies, and how they have begun to integrate biomimicry in its many, many facets into their design process into their work process and I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about your organization biomimicry 3.8 and this is something that our listeners if you want to open up a new tab in your web browser and while we're we're going to be going to commercial in just a second if you want to take a look at this just google biomimicry 3.8 and when we come back we're going to talk to Janine about the work that she's doing there so don't go away folks we've got much more to talk about uh run go green Radio right after this quick break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us and so happy to have our guest, Janine Benyus, on the show today. Um, she's the author of Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. She's an international speaker and sought-after consultant by companies that are trying to create sustainable designs and to conduct their business in such a way that it's helpful, not harmful to the environment we all depend on. So, Janine, before we went to break, we were talking about your organization, Biomimicry 3.8. Talk to us about what that organization is all about, what you do, and who is involved. Sure. Um, I probably should answer the question on everybody's mind, which is why 3.8? And that stands for 3.8 billion years of life being on Earth. And so what we do at Biomimicry 3.8, it's a consultancy, um, biomimetic consultancy. So we bring nature's ideas to the design table. So we work with designers, engineers, architects, chemists, material scientists, um, and we call, our, we call ourselves biologists at the design table. And we, when a company asks us, you know, how does nature repel water, um, they're usually looking for a way to, you know, substitute Teflon or something or a, a chlorinated compound for something else. And we take a step back and say, okay, how, wh- how does the natural world repel water? And we look, we do what's called an amoeba through zebra report. And we look at everything from bacteria to fungi to plants, to animals. How, how do organisms uh, repel water, and we find a lot of different mechanisms. Um, some of them are chemical; many of them are physical. You know, actually creating a, a 
surface that repels repels water. Um, and then we bring that taxonomy of ideas to the inventors, and we tr- never find Teflon. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. We find an alternative way to either make fibers that repel water or uh, surface of a of a product to repel water in um, in a completely different way. That's that's what we. So we have we have two things that we do. We've got a product uh, vertical where we're doing product as product and process design, um, and then we also have a built world um, category where we're working everything from the building level all the way up to cities, to city planning, uh, and we also do organizational development work. That's amazing. And you have worked with some of the most respected consumer brands to help them create some sustainable designs. And there's one case study that I really love, and I want you to talk to us about it. Tell us about your work with the world's largest carpet manufacturer, Interface. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I'm sitting here, and there's a there's a new mid course correction. Ray Anderson is the is the uh, or was CEO and founder of Interface, and he's looking at me right now um, mm-hmm. from the from the book cover. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, Interface. Yeah, Interface makes something. They make carpet tiles. If you go to you know you're walking in an airport next time, notice these carpet squares. Um, that's that's what they make, and. Um, they invited us in because, you know, Ray, Ray thought that a company should run like a forest. And they invited it. Their product designers actually invited us in. And um, the first thing we did was, you know, they, we took their, their designers and their inventors and engineers out into, into a forest and said, you know, how does nature, how would nature make a, a floor covering? And, uh, you know, they looked down at, the leaves on the forest floor in this case and just and they realized that when they picked up a leaf and they looked back down they didn't see any difference right that there was visually there was there was this incredible sort of random order that their their problem what they were dealing with was that they want they didn't want people to waste um, carpet tiles, right? And what, or put carpet into landfill. And what was happening was that if a carpet tile wore out, people were picking up the entire uh, carpet and throwing it in, into a landfill. Because if they sent them a new carpet tile, the carpet tile would look different. It would have a different, you know, pattern. Because what, what they used to do is take broadloom carpet and just print a pattern onto it, and then you had to puzzle it together. And so the idea that came out of that workshop was pretty revolutionary for their industry, which was make every carpet tile different, but give it a, you know, overall harmony of colors and patterns, but make every carpet tile different. So you can put it down in a number of different ways. And then when you want to replace the carpet tile, because they wanted you to send it back so they could recycle it, send you a new one, and then you would put it down and it wouldn't be the sore thumb effect. That was huge. It really now was. Now 40% of their, of their uh, uh, business is this, this line called, called Entropy. It's now called I2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the first thing we did for them. Well, and yeah. before that, Janine, I mean, you know, people had to replace a whole great big swath of carpet, like change out the whole room. I mean, even before the tiles, I remember when the tiles first came out, that was 
like such a big deal in places like hotels and things like that, where they constantly have people spilling on the carpet, but they couldn't yeah. rip up the whole room, you know, so that was a big deal as well. Talk to us about your work with some of the major companies that produce consumer packaged goods like Colgate, Palmolive, Procter & Gamble, and General Mills. Right. Yeah, you know, in many of those cases, we're looking at we're looking at reducing toxins. We're looking at packaging alternatives. Um, we worked with an industrial laundry uh, uh, company, and one of the things they were looking at was how to remove blood from hospital sheets because that turns out to be one of the biggest biohazards out of hospitals because mm-hmm. you use so much chlorine. Mm-hmm. And so much hot and cold cycles, there's a lot of energy use. Um, and in that case, what we did was we read 10,000 papers about organisms like vampire bats, and leeches, and mosquitoes, organi- hookworms, organisms that take a blood meal. Because basically what we do in biomimicry is we say, well, what's the function? What are you really trying to do when you're washing blood out of out of sheets, what you're doing is you're breaking down hemoglobin. What breaks down hemoglobin? You know, any organism that takes a blood meal, that drinks blood, has to break it down. So the chemistry, when you go inside those organisms, the chemistry is very, very interesting. Um, And they separate the heme, which is the pigment, the red, uh, from the globin. And we were able to um, give them 25 different uh, ideas about how to do that in a in a non toxic way. Um, it's a very interesting field. I mean, we worked with a um, a waste to energy uh, company uh-huh. that you know um, they incinerate waste, and the environmental problem there is that particulates go up the smokestack. Right? That's why people don't want incinerators in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they've got these giant rooms with bags, like our vacuum bag, only think gigantic, um, mm-hmm. to try to capture those particulates, and those clog, just like your vacuum cleaner clogs. Um, so we were brought in to say, how does nature filter particulates out of the air or out of a moving stream? Um, and when you go and you think about that, you think, well, fluids, where are there particulates and fluids? And actually, one of the coolest ideas we had was um, we looked at mangroves because they put their roots into seawater. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you know, seawater is flowing along those roots, and they actually build land, right? So behind each of the roots, there's a little bit of, of silt, that sand that, that drops, and eventually they build land. But those roots are not in a random pattern. They actually are in a pattern, those columns, think of them, get down in the water level, they're columns. Those are in a pattern that play with, with vortexes in the water in such a way as to drop out the maximum amount of particulates. Mm-hmm. So imagine putting columns in those rooms instead of a bag. Right. Well, if, if you happen to be talking about Covanta, they are actually one of the sponsors of this show, and I've seen their their bag in their mission houses. So yeah, um, yep, exactly. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, it's um, yeah. So that that's the kind of detective work that we do. Um, that's so and cool. There's a lot, you know, companies are trying to get rid of. We have to sign NDAs because um, non disclosure yeah. agreements because yeah. um, 
the, the the way we make our world right now is you know it's 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 it needs a lot of improvement it does right? it does and i know you've yeah. worked with boeing you've worked with shell oil um yeah. what can you tell us about those projects well i can tell you that uh one of the one of the projects that I found really interesting, um, actually it was a group that came to one of our workshops. We also do education. We also do training all the way up to a two-year master's course at ASU at Arizona State University. But they came to one of our workshops. They sent a group and they were looking at um, rain in the plane. They were looking at the fact that there's a fuselage, you know, your cabin that you sit in in the plane. It's a, they're the, the outside of the of the airplane, um, there's a space between those two cylinders, between the cabin, and in that space between the cabin and the and the outside of the plane, um, that's where water vapor goes. And when you come down in certain flights uh, and it's cold, uh, that precipitates out, and you actually have what they call rain in the plane. And they were looking at at how does nature deal with, um, you know protecting against that water vapor moving and how does it keep things from freezing. Um, it was really interesting to watch. And th- that was their kind of skunk works group that had come down um, to be with us in Costa Rica. But, you know, the, the, um, the other thing that we're working on that I'm really excited about, I talked about the built world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really actually taking off more than any other part of our business right now. And that is, we realize that one of the biggest impacts uh, a company can have is place. It's actually the real estate that it owns and the Mm -hmm. lands that it owns around that real estate, whether it's a factory or their headquarters, um, they actually are in a place. And so the question is, how does that place perform as well as the ecosystem next door. Can, can, a, can a factory and its site perform and function just like a forest next door? That is, and when we say function mm-hmm. there on a systems level, mm-hmm. we're talking about can it, can it purify water wow. as well as the ecosystem next door? Can it store carbon? That's a big question because it helps us look at our our built environment in a completely different way. I mean, evaluating it on a whole new set of metrics that we've never considered. We've got to go to a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have more with Janine Benyus. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. Right before the break, we were talking with Janine Benyus about this idea of looking at the space that a company owns, its real estate, and asking, can this space that we occupy perform as well as the neighboring ecosystems? And Janine, I wanted to give you a chance to talk more about that because I know that's a big focus of Biomimicry 3.8. It is, Jill. Yeah, there's you know there's so many companies now who are saying, you know, is net zero enough, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we've worked for so long to reduce our environmental footprint, um, but is there a way to actually have a positive, what they call handprint now, have a positive effect? And I think that one of the best ways to do that is right where you're making your products or where you're housing housing your people. Or even in, you know, if you're a school, your campus, right? Um, if you're an individual, your backyard. Um, because these are places that we touch. And I actually think that whatever part of the earth you touch, you can heal. Um, you can participate in that being a producer of benefits, because as a biomimic, when we look at an ecosystem, we realize the ecosystem's not just meeting its own needs, right? It's exhaling uh, benefits. You know, I sit looking at the, at the mountains outside my window here, and I see that they're purifying air, and, blow, and that air is coming to me. They're purifying water, and that water's coming to me. I mean, ecosystems are generous. So can our landscapes be as generous? And I, I think they, they can be. It's a design, again, it's a design issue. So what we do is we work with companies and we say, when they decide, okay, let's see if we can clean the water and clean the air and buffer noise and sequester carbon on our site, can we support habitat for organisms on our site? Could we have hawks nesting here? When they ask that question, what we do is we say, well, let's get a, let's get a measurement an ideal, a gold standard, and we go to the most intact ecosystem we can find in their area, you know, a national forest, a park, and we measure that. And we say, okay, here's an acre. How much water is it cleaning? How much habitat is it supporting? How much water is it storing? Carbon is it storing? And we come back and we say, well, you own seven acres here. Let's see what we can do. And we say not only, you know, so maybe you've got this parking lot, right? Well, if you want to store water, maybe it's a permeable park pavement mm-hmm. that you put in instead, right? And if mm-hmm. you want to cool the area just like you like the forest does, maybe you're putting up solar awnings or maybe mm-hmm. you're planting trees, right? We say, okay, what about the, the building itself? Um, can we put a green roof on that roof that you've got there? Can we put some some plants that are going to attract pollinators because that's an ecosystem service. And mm-hmm. we ask the company to think about how many positive benefits they can produce and then count them up 
and celebrate them over time. It's really, really interesting. We've got a, a group of a learning cohort now of companies that are looking into to doing this. And actually, you know, Ford is work. We're working with Ford on four buildings right now: uh, Interface, Aquafil, um, Kohler, the plumbing company, mm-hmm. Microsoft, Google. Um, they're saying, "Hey, what about our data centers? Could we?" Could people actually want a data center to come into their neighborhood? Because there's going to be benefits that come from, from, this, uh, from this land. It's a different mindset, Jill. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think, you know, we've thought, we've thought of ourselves as a, as a plague um, on the landscape for too long. What it if doesn't we have to be about that way. ourselves as producers of yeah, we doesn't have to be that way, but it's a design issue, isn't it? It really is. It really is. And and I think it's so um, fascinating that companies are are moving in this direction because it took so long to get a lot of companies even just to include sustainability into their products, let alone the space they occupy. And I am just so excited they have a guide like you and your team at Biomimicry 3.8 to guide them. Now, you dropped a little hint uh, in the segment before last that you're working on a new book. What inside scoop can you give Go Green Radio listeners on that project? Oh, sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm working on a source book for biomimics. The big thing that people need when they do biomimicry is to understand how life works. So I'm going back to the biology, and I'm looking at nature's universals. I'm looking at the patterns of how life heals, like we were talking about. How does life do the circular economy? What are the patterns, the underlying principles of a chemistry that's circular? Right? How does life optimize? How does life scale? What does good growth mean? Right? How does life grow without overshoot? Um, and I've, I'm finding these deep, deep patterns. I'm hoping that this will be... Um, this will be a very practical book, but also an eye-opening book to how competent our planet is. Um, I'm finding it to be so. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be back in the biology. There's so much now that biology is learning about not just the particulars, but the general principles you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things like Darwin did with understanding natural selection. Biologists mm-hmm. are doing that for, um, for many, many fields right now. Everything from how late nature shapes community, like we were talking about, how does life do networking, right? All the way to the very particulars about how life creates minimal friction and drag. Like, what are the deep principles that engineers can use? to use to sip energy instead of guzzling it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to collect those uh, between the covers of a book. It's a big, big, big job, but I'm loving it. It's really fun. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Now, I yeah. want to talk about, you know, what's on your website for Biomimicry 3.8. You actually have some products that people can just buy. I mean, I, I didn't expect to be able to shop when I went to your page, but when I started looking at some of the things you have, I was like, Oh my gosh, these are so cool. These items are so amazing. Talk to us about some of the things that you have up there. 
Well, yeah, the, um, w- our job is to try to get this field, right, to, to naturalize biomimicry in the culture. Um, so one of the things, if you're interested in this, is we've got a, a resource handbook where we basically have put together uh, the, the very things that we teach um, all, all the way from our, you know, our, our uh, two-year course, basically, where we have a lot of those resources there. Um, and we also have a thing, we've got an, um, a book that will help you. I think in these 30, in these, uh, we have something called 30 Days of, of Reconnect at the Institute, the Biomimicry Institute, our nonprofit. Um, and it helps you go outside and basically start the process of observing the natural world in a way to learn from it, not just about it. And so we have a book that, that basically collects these exercises. We call them eyesights. Um, and uh, and helps you um, helps you become a biomimic yourself in your own backyard. But there's lots of educational resources on our site and mm-hmm. fun things, I, you know, fun fun downloads. Yeah, and I even love the cards. That whole idea, you know, when I was a kid, I used to get um, every month. I used to get these nature cards, and I had a little box. And every month when the cards yeah. would come, I would you know categorize them, and they were all. You know, my favorite, it was one of my favorite things. And you've got these cool cards that, you know, people can learn about biomimicry with. I think, um, you know, yeah. right now, while a lot of kids are learning at home, these are the kind of things that might be fun for parents to, you know, to take a look at and, and maybe yeah. even use. It, you Absolutely. Know, the, yeah. yeah. And, and in the final couple minutes that we have left in the show, Janine, I want to give you a chance to just freestyle and talk to our listeners, share some, some final thoughts in the last couple minutes. Well, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot about um, what this pause that we're all experiencing, a pause in our incredible busyness, right? What does this mean when we hit restart again? And is this an opportunity for us to let go of some of the things we've been filling our lives with um, and consuming Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, that we now realize we really don't need, Mm -hmm. right? Do we have a time to sit and and think about how to redesign our entire world. Because I actually think that it's that deep, deep kind of reset we need. The things we've yep. been talking about today, you know, it's how so do we true, make material? How do we feed ourselves, right? It's this perfect. is an opportunity so, for us to choose differently. So glad that we were able to have you on and talk about this. You're so right. This is Let's use this pause wisely, folks. And checking out Janine's uh, website, Biomimicry 3.8, is one of many ways to do that. Janine, it was wonderful having you on the show. And I thank my guests and my listeners for joining as well. Um, We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.